0: Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today, I have the honor of again being joined by Dr. Mike Gessertel, who is a leading pioneer of thought in our sphere. And today we're gonna be talking about some more advanced concepts in bodybuilding that I think you'll get a lot of value from. So we're gonna be talking about the volume landmarks and adaptive resistance. And finally, we'll put it all together to teach you how to set up a mesocycle That is how to actually progress your training from week to week. One of the most common topics I get asked about, and what better not to hear it from straight from the source. So thanks for being on the show.
1: Um, Dr. Wong, thank you for having me. I must must used your first name so rudely.
0: (laughs) People started calling me Dr. Swole at the hospital. hospital. Dr. Swole, oh my God, (laughs) why
1: did I say Dr. Wong? I thought I was being overly formal (laughs) people look at your name tag look up at you you're like uh just whatever whatever you want to call me is fine <laughs> yeah
0: exactly I'm just waiting for them to call me overhead one day <laughs> it's dr soul but anyways yeah so i was thinking starting off with the volume landmarks because i think you know in thinking about how to set up a mesocycle you realize that there are a few concepts that need to come into play before we can get to the juicier stuff so yeah as you know the initial uh Inventor of these concepts, I think it'd be great to just hear a broad overview of them and how should how people should be divining them.
1: The volume um, landmarks in particular,
0: or yeah, just they... starting off with the volume landmarks, sure,
1: sure. Yeah, so
0: it's just like the- the-
1: theoretical ideas um, that myself and my colleague James Hoffman derived. And uh, they're really not overly complicated. They they have funny acronyms and sciencey sounding stuff to describe them, but they can be really broken down quite simply. So think about it. Theoretically, your maintenance volume is the amount of volume you can do and say any given unit of time per session per week that maintain the size of your muscles. And that's a a very uh, interesting thing for us to wanna know because if we train below our maintenance volume, we all by definition lose muscle size. Uh, and then, so that's the first uh, volume landmark that's probably important to talk about. Then if you do more volume at some point, you hit another volume landmark called the minimum effective volume. And that is per any given situation, the minimum amount of volume, usually measured as number of sets, like it you know, say five sets for quads uh, per session, let's say 10 sets per week or something, is the minimum amount of volume you have to do to see progress. Now in our book, we have actually two books uh, at least that cover the volume landmarks, one dedicated ex- explicitly towards them called How Much Should I Train? We chose a non-technical title. Um, the what does progress even mean gets the whole like five paragraphs to define. But the simplest way is, uh, you know, detectable progress. Like, uh, you know, if, if I say, let's say I do four sets of back on Monday and four sets of back on Thursday. And after a few weeks, it is my back a little bit stronger for reps. If the the answer is yes, then we are at or above minimum effective volume. If I honestly tell myself, well, you know, I'm not really sure, then maybe not, maybe not. And then so minimum effective volume is the least amount um, you can do. And it's been described more generally as the minimum effective dose um, before by other folks before me. And um, that's a a very good concept to know because training of anything below that generally won't get you more jacked, which, you know, considering you go to the gym mostly to get jacked. I'd say it's kind of upsetting if you find out randomly you've been training below your minimum effective volume.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it's also a very good thing to know because it begins, it opens what we call this sort of adaptive window, minimum effective volume, all the way up to maximum recoverable volume. Maximum recoverable volume is the most volume you can do and still recover to come back and do it again with as much intensity. So basically it's the amount of volume. If you train above that for some amount of time, you your fatigue will accumulate faster than your fitness mm. and you will become weaker and eventually smaller and basically the mr it's called the you know maximum recovery volume mrv for short and the mrv basically is a concept built on a realization that your body has a finite ability to recover and you know the hardcore crowd is what really led us in, in many ways to make this concept and it's like look say like yeah man such thing as overtraining, just under eating and under sleeping like okay well then just do 80 sets of back per week so how much sleep and food do you need to recover from that? Be like, wow, okay, that's too much. Okay, so MRV has to exist. It must exist. Every, actually, every known adaptive system has an MRV. Like, you know, if, if you know, a certain city can clean its streets reliably well day to day, if you put down 10 feet of snow, it exceeds the MRV of the city to clean its streets. <laughs> if there's finite limits exist. So we have this minimum effective volume, we have this maximum recovery volume between these two values, just as an example, 10 sets per week of legs and 20 sets per week of legs, just as an example, anything between there will grow muscle. And the next question is, well, is there a value between there that grows the most muscle per unit time? And so theoretically that value does exist. We've turned it the maximum adaptive volume. It's the most, Uh, it's the volume amount that gives you the most gains per unit time. But however, the maximum adaptive volume moves significantly around. It floats between minimum effective volume and maximum recoverable. And depending on where you are in your mesocycle, it will be either lower at the beginning or higher at the end for some pretty good reasons that are pretty clearly observable in normal training. So that's, that's probably a that's right. Decent intro. Did I miss anything?
0: Yeah, no, that was that was great, and <clears throat> I really like these concepts because they are just a very concise way of putting together a lot of you know uh, of thoughts, and they're really practical when you start getting into really getting into science based bodybuilding and having a logical approach to things. For someone who's just getting into this, could you? briefly talk about how to actually find these landmarks for someone who wants to figure them out.
1: Yeah. So maintenance volume, if we could table that. If you wanna talk about it later, we can, but what we're really looking for is minimum effective volume. It's probably one of the most important ones because you don't wanna train less than what gives you gains. And it would be really quite sad if you, so a, a very easy analogy here, is eating plenty of calories and not gaining weight uh, you're not eating enough calories to gain weight but you are not in a surplus and it doesn't matter how hard you're working how many months you spent eating uh it's all almost literally down the drain because you haven't gained any weight and thus almost no muscle. so minimum effective volume is similar in that regard like you can train pretty hard but be below your minimum effective volume and all that training is well keeping you the same size So the way to detect minimum effective volume is is quite difficult. If we had to do it very scientifically, it would be through measuring uh, muscle gain and loss, Uh, and that would have to be with biopsies and all this other crazy stuff. But practically, via proxies in the gym, we can sort of estimate minimum effective volume in a couple of ways. One of the ways is, you know, does the amount of volume you're doing in a session give you a robust pump? Like, do you feel some swelling going? Because uh, there's tons and tons now of experimental rationale for this. There's direct evidence of pump predicting hypertrophy. But basically, like, if your workout's not like a bicep workout, makes your biceps no more pumped than they are normally, She, you know, it really strains the imagination to figure that they're growing from that sort of thing. Hmm. Another one is how fatigued the muscle is. So if the muscle becomes fatigued enough to get weaker during the workout, then you're probably stimulating the muscle in some capacity that's making it fatigued Hmm. and probably also causing some hypertrophy. But if your muscle is basically, if you can curl 65 pounds for a set of 10 at the beginning of the workout, then you do a bicep workout and then you curl 65 for 10 at the end of the workout, it's really just not clear what it is that you were doing, maybe like an extended warm-up. So if, uh, for example, you figure out an amount of volume that gives you a decent pump, the beginnings of a good pump, an amount of volume that makes your muscles significantly tired, notably tired, from beginning of the session to the end and a volume that concomitantly leaves your muscles a little bit sore or just uh, not feeling quite normal for anywhere to, from a couple of hours to a couple of days after training. The minimum volume that does those things to a small extent, some kind of pump, some kind of notable weakness, some kind of muscle soreness or delayed fatigue. That is a good bet that much more volume than that is, is probably at or above your minimum effective volume. Mm -hmm. So it's not terribly difficult to proxy, at least. I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is, but I'll say this. More advanced lifters tend to have higher minimum effective volumes, just based on what we know from direct literature. Like It just takes more for you to grow when you get more advanced. And probably not coincidentally, advanced lifters don't get pumps as easy. They don't get weakness as easy, and they don't get soreness as easy. They have to do a little bit more work than somebody who's beginning lifting and i'm sure um bill have you trained people in in person before have you ever done any kind of personal training or helped family or friends out yeah a little bit yeah yeah so you'll notice like you show someone the technique for squatting that's never squatted and like eight reps later with body weight they're like my quads feel funny oh my god oh my god can i sit down and you're like what you get a pump and fatigue from eight reps with body weight well, that's all it takes and then you can ask the question mm-hmm. well does that really the minimum effective volume yes Mm-hmm. Yes, if you get new beginners to do a set of eight in the bodyweight squat, they will grow muscle from it for a few days. And you do a set of 12 after a few days, they'll grow even more muscle and so on and so forth. But if you take someone like, you know, oh, I don't know, Phil Heath or or, or Big Rami, I mean, it's going to take, you know, a set of eight in the squat. He's going to look at you and be like, OK, I'm not even warmed up yet. Now, mm-hmm. like, oh, we actually have to do more. And then, you know, it may take more sets for someone like that to, to get a pump, to get some disruption to get some weakness. And if we can check those boxes, we can be reasonably certain, not exactly certain, that anything at that level of volume or above is at least likely to cause hypertrophy. We can be more certain that anything below that level, that is to say training that is not remotely disruptive, probably doesn't dependably cause hypertrophy and we don't wanna bet on it. And mm-hmm. on the other end, if something destroys you, like you can barely walk, gee, you know that's gotta be well above your minimum effective volume. Probably getting closer to max recoverable, so that's how you estimate minimum effective volume. Mm-hmm. Luckily, maximum recoverable volume estimation is much easier. You do a certain level of volume, and you keep track of your repetition strength. Let's say you do in sets of ten with the hundred pound dumbbells or something. Next week you do another amount of volume, possibly more volume. Let's say instead of ten sets of chest, you do twelve sets of chest. You again do the, the presses, and let's say just for simplicity's sake, because we would ideally want to increase the load on the bar. Well, actually, fuck it. We'll do we'll do the we'll do the real one. So you use 105 pounds. You do again for sets of 10. Are you weaker? No. If you are not weaker, then you are by definition recovered. Because in sports science, recovery means return to past performance, at Mm -hmm. least return to past performance. So when do you hit your maximum recovery volume? It is when you do enough volume week after week after week that you come in and you're weaker than you were before. You try to do the 110s and you get them for six and you're like, oh, shit, uh, I'm weaker officially. It's official. I should have gotten at least eight. I couldn't do it. And that usually comes with some subjective perception as well. So when you hit your MRV, especially if you're training most of your whole body, you'll feel very tired. You will have some sleep disruption. You will have some appetite dysregulation, which means you look at food and you'll be like, I don't know why people eat food. I don't wanna eat food. I just wanna curl up in a corner and die. Uh, Your training motivation often suffers where you you look at what you have to do for the leg workout ahead and you're like, "Ah, I don't wanna be here anymore. I hate bodybuilding, get me out. So that's more like systemic MRV, but a local MRV is just the easiest way to detect it is a failure to return to past performance. And now here's the thing. we're never quite sure if it's just acute fatigue or having a bad workout. So at RP we like to uh, reasonably check box check the MRV box if we have two sessions for that muscle group in a row, I say Monday and Thursday that fail to get us to past performance or above. And then we're okay, it's not a fluke. I really am kind of messed up. And perceptually, just to give folks here, and this is all in the books we've written, perceptually, a lot of times when you're close to MRV or at MRV for a local muscle, the muscle doesn't feel right. It feels weak. When you're warming up, You're like, there's something missing in there. A lot of times when you take enough muscle damage from high volumes, glycogen repletion is incomplete because damage directly interferes with glycogen repletion. Mm. So a lot of times your muscles actually appear smaller. They're Mm. less swollen. can't get a pump as easy. And you're like, dude, I'm just spinning my wheels here. It feels like it feels empty. It's like if you blew out all of your air and then someone after that said, okay, blow out as much as you can, you'd be like, Like that's how your muscles feel. (laughs) They've blown out all the air and then they just have nothing. So that's how you calculate MRV. And so if you know how to peg MEV, you know how to peg MRV within some range of uncertainty, you know roughly where your mesocycle can start volume wise and roughly when it's probably time to end
0: it. Yeah, those those are really important concepts to grasp, I think. And I think a lot of people listening right now are going to be wondering, so how do you find MAV?
1: So we don't know. We just straight up don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that theoretically your maximum adaptive volume uh, in most cases has to be between your MEV and your MRV. And we also know a couple other things. We know that at the beginning of a mesocycle, after a deload, you're very well rested, also technically a little bit detrained. And if the exercises are different or the repetition ranges are different, we know that it doesn't take a lot to significantly impose a lot of muscle damage. We also know another thing, that a high degree of muscle damage directly interferes with hypertrophy. There's some competition between processes that recover and processes that adapt. If you damage your muscles so intensely that it just everything for them to recover, they may not actually adapt much and thus they may not grow much. It's kind of like the analogy of getting into a car accident to cause muscle growth. Like, yeah, you sure damaged yourself six months in the hospital. It's not a great protocol for getting jacked. So because we know that excessive damage is probably not a good idea for growth, we know that the maximum adaptive volume, the beginning of your mesocycle probably isn't close to your maximum recoverable volume because you're quite unaccustomed to things. Your maximum adaptive volume is MEV here, MRV here, your maximum adaptive volume probably right around here somewhere when you begin. And then if you begin close to your MEV, and you have good workouts, your maximum adaptive volume due to adaptive resistance, because you present a stimulus once, it's novel, it's very good, you present it again, it's perhaps less novel, perhaps as good. And once you're in that position, maybe your maximum adaptive volume tends to move up a little bit. And then you can sort of chase it by increasing how much volume you're doing until you run into your MRV. And then, well, you simply can't continue to present an overload, so you have to take a break. I, I would say that, you know, based on some of the literature we've seen, especially recently with pumps, um, I think mm. an estimate at your best, your maximum adaptive volume is where you get a very robust pump gets mm. significantly fatigued and probably some delayed fatigue and in, in pres- presented as soreness. If you're getting amazing workouts where you're like pumped out of your mind and just the muscles are just torn up, that's probably close to your maximum adaptive volume, but we can't quite be sure because we don't have a real good proxy measure for a sort of instant, like, "ooh, how close are we? So our recommendation, thus, at RP, is for most cases to start at around your minimum effective volume and then auto-regulate based on if you're getting good pumps and good soreness and good fatigue. And if you're not getting those things anymore, if you don't think you will be with a certain given of volume next week, you raise the volume in order to continue to get them. So are you getting good pumps? Yes. Are you getting soreness? Yes. The amount of volume it's going to take to check those boxes due to adaptive resistance generally increases just slightly over the course of a muscle cycle. Now sometimes if you're really big and strong and the distance between your MEV and MRV is very low, which is often the case with advanced athletes, sometimes you can make up those uh, uh, differences in stimulus with just load or rep progression, Mm -hmm. like 500 for 10 in the squat is MEV. 500 for 14 is MRV, so if you go 500 for 10, then for 11, then for 12, then 13, then for 14, that's it, you hit MRV and you're done. It could be like that, but oftentimes for beginners and especially intermediates, you may have to add some sets. And because that occurs in a purely auto-regulatory manner, you don't have to ask yourself theoretically, should I add sets? You simply examine how your training responses are going and you add sets based on if you are seeing from training what you should be seeing.
0: Yeah great insight i think that you know at at some point people will kind of think of of these things in terms of a very auto-regulated fashion but you know up till that point it's really important to be able to have some kind of benchmark that you can you can actually have a a landmark which is exactly how you have you turn them or some kind of endpoint where you can know in your head okay this is around where it should be you know deloading or or making changes i think this kind of segues into our next topic, which is adaptive resistance and how this can affect our volume, you know, uh, how we might manipulate volume and other variables. Could you, you know, in, define adaptive resistance for the audience?
1: Yeah, sure. It's the phenomenon by which the same stimulus begins to yield smaller and smaller magnitudes of gain. So, like, say, you squat. Uh, 225 for three sets of 10. You're not used to squatting. The novelty alone gives you a good stimulus and it's a great exercise. It fits, fits your body very well. You do it, you get a great pump, great soreness, great stimulus, grow some muscle. If you do that same workout again later that week, 225, three sets of 10, your abilities to squat have improved from last time. And thus, that same workout will no longer be as challenging. And then you basically don't adapt as much. So just by becoming better, you have incurred some adaptive resistance. It's kind of like, you know, if you become a really good martial artist at your local gym, you just might run out of really good people to fight. You've already beat everyone up at your gym. There's no black belts. You're Somewhere else, right? There's nothing wrong with you. It's a good thing that you're in this case but the same stimulus cannot possibly make you much better anymore. So the stimulus must be altered. The stimulus can be altered in a number of ways. One, the relative effort you're pushing, putting in can be the thing that is altered, or no it should be. So, you know, increase the load on the bar or increase the repetition demand of each set. And then you're getting just as close to failure as before. And thus you're getting a lot of, uh, of input out of that. However, generally speaking, two things happen during the training process weeks over weeks over weeks. One is that you become more efficient at a movement and you take on less muscle damage. And another is that your work capacity improves sometimes greatly. Mm. And so if you had the work capacity at the beginning of the mesocycle to do five sets and recover well, that would probably cause more growth. If it didn't cause so much fucking damage, and cause negative growth. Hmm. But as you go week to week to week to week, your body gets way better at not experiencing as much damage. And simultaneously, its work capacity also goes up. So you can do more effective sets without just tiring out and be like, bah. you know, I like can do curls enough times. You're like, I don't even feel anything from that. My arms are dead. As hmm. your work capacity goes up, the number of effective sets you can do and actually stimulate gains goes up. And great news, the stimulus is for muscle growth because your body is much better now. Your muscles are much better at tolerating damage and just not experiencing as much. And if you're simultaneously raising the relative effort, that is the number of reps or the amount of load on the bar every set, then you're in a position where, yeah, you're challenging the body, but three sets just isn't as much of a challenge as it used to be. And it used to be that you would want to do three sets, which are, you would want to do four sets, but you didn't have the work capacity for it. Or four sets would Mm. cause so much damage, it would interfere with growth. Now in week two, four sets no longer or causes too much damage, and you have the work capacity for it. So why not do it? Uh, a, a volume is generally well linked, uh, relatively linearly to growth, if you can recover. And that's the big thing. If you can't recover, it's a stupid idea to do. But if your recovery capacity is m- improving quite radically workout to workout to workout, then you sh- can and probably should do more sets. And because generally speaking, your your body uh, is you know, generates adaptations to stimulant, uh, stimulus in a reluctant way, I would say, then you need a little bit more next time. So so for example, uh, if you're getting a suntan, you know, 10 minutes under the pot bulbs or whatever, and you get a certain degree of uh, tan, then after a while, 10 minutes just doesn't do anything anymore hmm. because your skin has adaptive resistance. And well, now you need more. Now you need 15 minutes or something like that. And someone could say, well, what about just uh, a lot of light in 10 minutes, more light. That's definitely one of the ways to do it. But if you only push that button, then you could have some bad effects. So for example, if you expose your skin to really insane lights, at some point it just burns. There's some limit to how much tan you can get in 10 minutes. It's not like you can just make the, the, the bulb brighter and brighter and brighter and then more and more tan. At some point it just crosses the threshold to burning. And the similar analogy for that is people would say, well, why do I have to increase sets week to week to week? Why don't I just make the lifting harder? Okay. How do you do that? Make it heavier. Okay. And 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 then what if you're already training to failure? Is it productive to go beyond failure? We already know the answer. That's almost certainly not. The fatigue is just way too high. At some point, just doing another set might be the best stimulus to fatigue ratio thing you can do to keep progressing. So you do another set uh, because it's 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 kind of like. <laughs> no, you need more stimulus. You can recover from more, more stimulus and pushing any of the other buttons like adding repetitions or adding weight will push you so close to failure that it just doesn't make any sense. So um, yeah, at that point you go and you do more sets. Here's another thing. A lot of times there's a kind of a, a recalcitrance of resistance to adding sets uh, by saying, well, you know, why can't, why can't you just modify other variables? My response to that is, why are why aren't we why can't we add sets? Is there something religious about it? Is it really that bad to add sets? What's wrong with the process? Uh, and to me, there's nothing wrong as long as it's in evidence, uh, as long as it's a good idea. So, for example, if you are getting uh, four sets of bench press, your packs are destroyed, pumped to the gills, gonna get sore, just useless afterwards. Should you add sets? No, God no. You're already checking the box, but if you can still do more work productively and your pecs aren't maximally pumped and you know that you're gonna recover well on time for your next workout, why not do more sets? Oh, that's the kind of base logic now in our book scientific principles of hypertrophy training, we actually have um, charts in which you can check the boxes and do I add load, do I add reps, do I add sets? And it's all algorithmic. Uh, I'm just trying to break it down in a bit more real world language. to basically say, look, if you need more volume, because the current volume is not giving you as good of a pump as it used to. Why would we expect it to? It's not getting you as sore as we used to. What used to be difficult to recover from, it's now pretty easy to recover from. And we know that if we're still well within our recovery boundaries, doing more generally tends to, to work better as far as hypertrophy than do more sets. And that's basically every workout you reassess. Okay, the last time I did this workout, how much did it fuck me up? Well, pretty pretty well, but I felt like I was adapting pretty well. At the end of the workout, you say, okay, I'm not nearly as pumped as I was last workout. Let's add a few sets. You add a few sets of chest or whatever. You get the same kind of really great pump that you did last workout. And then that's it. And then you see, oh, did I recover on time from this workout? Yep, I recovered. So I do at least as many sets next time, potentially more.
0: Mm -hmm. I see people picketing outside with uh, t-shirts saying one set to failure.
1: That's it, man. (laughs) Once a week, once every year, all we need. If you go hard enough, that's
0: that's worth it. So yeah, that that triggers another question I've I've been having that is about the concept of novelty or the novelty, you know. Do you get a stimulus from novelty itself? Like say we had two equally effective training techniques for this individual.
1: I think what happens with novelty, there is two kinds of novelty that I can think of off the top of my head. One is which fiber types we're stimulating and which ones are limiting factors, hmm. And two is by what um, pathway are we stimulating? So the first one is, let's say you do curls like this and then someone teaches you to do curls like this. I don't know, changing the position of the arm, changing the exercise, dumbbells to cables, to barbells, et cetera, may make some motor units in that in that muscle more limiting factors than they were before, mm-hmm. which is why you can get sore again, because those motor units take a ton of damage because they're like, holy sh- the hell, we're not used to trying this hard. Um, and then all of a sudden you get gains in that part of the muscle that you didn't use to. So novelty can give you gains by focusing on different motor units than you used to training. The older motor units that were the focus before probably still get enough stimulus to stick around the same size, but the new motor units that were not the onus before, they are the onus now, they probably make some adaptations over a few weeks. And then if you change that again, you go back to the training, the old way. So for example, hack squatting, uh, it's been shown in the literature, uh, alters the size of your quads, It, you know, not evenly in certain parts of your quad more than others. Leg press does it in other parts of your quad more than others. So the novelty of leg press, one of the reasons you get really sore leg pressing, if you haven't done it in a while, you've just been hack squatting, is because parts of your quads Uh, that weren't stressed to the very limits are now like, what the fuck, this is crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And they have to pick up speed and then they grow. So that's one way novelty can result in net growth, because if you train, let's say, hack squats for months and months, those motor units are exposed, 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 and then they build a lot of adaptive resistance to where they're Mm -hmm. like, man, you know, I'm not really interested in growing anymore. And then so you basically put them on maintenance by choosing leg presses instead, attack other group of motor units that have been taking it pretty easy and then they grow, and then you sort of grow one air, one part of motor units, grow another fraction of motor units, grow mm-hmm. another, and you sort of do it like that. The other way that novelty may work is in a, a sort of pathway or mechanistic novelty. We know that tension causes hypertrophy, mm-hmm. and we also know that metabolite sequestration probably also causes hypertrophy. And there's mm-hmm. been at least a few papers that directly link mechanistically lactic acid uh, causing, actually its presence causing hypertrophic triggers. Now we're not sure if all of those go to the same central governor of hypertrophy. Probably, probably all go through the mTOR loop, but um, there is good reason to believe that tension only mediated hypertrophy can, in, in as as a molecular system, can uh, sort of get into its own adaptive resistance, where like it just takes a lot of tension to get the job done.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: you know, if you train in high tension, let's say sets of five to ten, not a lot of metabolites generated. But like, you know, your joints can start to take a beating, your psychology can take a beating, your axial fatigue, you know, how much stress you put through your spinal cord, that can take a beating. And then if you switch novelty to higher repetition range, even with the same exercise, you are now generating muscle growth through the metabolic pathways. Mm -hmm. And they may be quite different pathways than the tension-mediated pathways, and then you get a lot of growth through those pathways. That's not to say that you get more growth than than you would through tension, but more growth than through a very fatigued and adaptively resistant tension mechanism. If your tension mechanism is like, "Ah, I can't do this anymore, then you bring in the metabolites and holy shit, that's a whole new level of growth. And then during the time that you're doing high reps, the tension mediated growth isn't being uh, as uh, stimulated and it sort of returns back, it resensitizes to more hypertrophy. So then when you go back to doing sets of five to 10, a few months later, you get a novelty from that. And so based on those two sorts of novelty is essentially motor unit pool novelty and mechanistic novelty of pathway novelty. You can basically change repetition ranges and exercises once a repetition range or exercise combo becomes stale, which is to say it just takes a lot of sets to get a good pump, good burn, good stimulus. And you're just like, geez, I need eight sets of bent rows to get a good back workout. Well, let me try machine rows. Four sets later, you're blown up out of fucking out of the water and you're like, uh, okay, I've accumulated like a third of the fatigue and I've gotten a crazy amount of proxy for hypertrophy, maybe it's time to switch it. So if an exercise stalls out on you, maybe switching the repetition range and or the actual modality, the exercise, uh, could potentiate some new gains while resensitizing those older systems to eventually loop them back in. And that's kind of how we do things at RP. Um, we do have a checklist for when it's time to change out the exercise. And it's, it's it's really quite easy. If an exercise is, you're still getting stronger on it. You're still getting robust pumps and mind-muscle connection and everything. You, your training is, is, has a very high level of stimulus or relatively low level of fatigue. Don't change it that like uh, some people can squat for six to 12 months with the same repetition range and make mad gains. And a lot of those same folks get on social media and they ask, hey, should I be doing something else? Mm -hmm. How is your progress? They're like, incredible. I'm like, no, (laughs) the answer is no. (laughs) But uh, if the progress is like, hey, my knees are starting to hurt. I have to do six squats to get the same thing I used to get out of four sets. And I tried hack squatting with my friends last Monday and just one set blew me up. Yeah, it's probably time to switch out squats and go to hack squats for a while, and that same adaptive curve will repeat itself. Once it flattens out and starts to decline a little, you change the exercise and/or repetition range and go on another uh, another foray.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's one of the fascinating things about you know being a bodybuilder is that there are multiple different avenues to hypertrophy, and the fact that we have different techniques at our disposal means that we can kind of alternate from back to back and forth. And it really gives you a lot, a very rich opportunity for periodization, right? Because you can basically, it's like climbing the ladder. You, you lift up with one arm, but then you, 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 you still hold on with the other one. You know, you're not losing out on strength when you're, when you're training a little bit more metabolite based, but uh, you still can come back to it and still, and still capitalize on those other you know, the other gains that you can get from other avenues. So, yeah, I think now that we've some good, a good, you know, baseline in terms of conceptual understanding, then if we could talk about mesocycle design and you've alluded to a lot of the aspects of, of this throughout our conversation so far, but if you could kind of put together in, in one idea, how you would like to set up mesocycles.
1: Yeah. So you build your week one, selecting exercises that you think will have high stimulus to fatigue ratios. That is not the stalled out stale ones. Mm -hmm. And you pick repetition ranges, at least generally, that are also fit that category of not stalled out, either already productive from your last mesocycle, showing no signs of slowing down, or new ones that you anticipate will be productive because the old ones are just no good anymore. You pick those exercises and repetition ranges in that fashion, and then you guess your sets at what you think will check the boxes of minimum effective volume that we talked about earlier, robust pump, robust fatigue, robust, a little bit of soreness. The thing is you can auto-regulate those within the session. If you do two sets of squats, let's say you were thinking of doing three sets of squats and you still have two sets of leg presses later mm-hmm. and you did, you did you think of three, you did two and your quads are already like real blown up. You're like, man, if I do three, this is gonna be way over affect effective volume. I'm gonna get mm-hmm. way too sore. I'm not gonna recover on time. It's gonna be stupid. I'm gonna to generate too much damage. And so what I tell people is in week one, I would actually err on the side of less and or just like whenever you get a decent pump, just leave the gym. Uh, and so you can mm-hmm. auto-regulate like that in week one very easily. And then in week two, you just assume that you're going to be getting roughly the same amount of volume in. But as you do week two, if you notice, they're like, "Mm, yeah, this wasn't as challenging as last time. And Hmm. last time my biceps didn't really get very sore uh, from three sets, this time when I did three sets, not only do I know they probably won't get sore at all, but they're not even that pumped let's do a fourth set. And based on that auto regulation, you increase or decrease or keep stable uh, set numbers of exercises as the mesocycle goes through. And then at some point, you of course, every time track your performance, at some point when your performance starts to falter, you have at least two sessions to confirm your performance is faltered, deload and then wash away that fatigue and then reconstruct the mesocycle. Now, what I just described is you could say like an unbound or open-ended mesocycle where you don't have a prescribed number of weeks of accumulation to deload. Mm-hmm. You, you can uh, do that, it's totally fine. And I would recommend the beginners and the intermediates do that plenty to try yeah. to figure out what their basic level of accumulation to deload paradigm roughly is so that they can at least anticipate something pretty pretty well. Because you know generally your body's gonna have some recovery capacity and you know, based on who you are now, how strong you are, what lifts you're doing. It's unlikely that you're going to have an accumulation to deal a paradigm, one mesocycle of three to one, three weeks of difficulty and one week of deload, and another mesocycle in the same year, that's nine to one, like anyone that can survive a nine to one, there's no way they're challenged enough at a three to one to have enough fatigue to where they need to deload outside of really, really crazy cases. So what you can do is after you do this for a while, you can say, you know, it almost always seems that I'm like pretty much close to a four to one cycle, And then that means five weeks total, four up and one deload. And then what you can do is you can progress through your future mesos attempting to get the five weeks and think of just add one more layer of thought to the, everything I just said and that layer is okay, let's say it's week four, uh, week three, four is the last hard week, five is the week. Like it's week three. When you're prescribing your volumes for that week, as you're deciding how many sets am I going to do today and tomorrow, you have to think of two things now. Thing one is the shit we talked before. Is this going to get me a robust stimulus and allow me to recover on time? Thing two is the fatigue I generate from week three with my decisions to go more sets, fewer sets are, are the same. Is that going to keep me Not so fatigued that week four is a total loss. Because like, let's say you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, week three. And you just go all the way crazy cycle failure and you add three sets to everything. There won't be a week four. (laughs) You're gonna get to week four Monday. and You're gonna go, and that's gonna be that, right? I'm deloading, I screwed up. So if you want a predetermined muscle cycle length, you have to know yourself very well, know your responses, be super honest. And from lots of experience, know, "Mm, okay, if I had a set to hack once today, I'm just not gonna make it to the end of the meso. So I'm just going to stick to four sets. And then in week four, right before I deload, then I can do like you know five sets of hack Then it doesn't matter because I deload after. So if you want a predetermined mesocycle length, you have to know a little bit more about yourself and anticipate how much fitness and fatigue something's going it, to It's It's very similar to being like you know, if you uh, are at a dinner, and, you know, let's say it's with some people you don't know. Um, you have to, you know, sort of have a modicum of politeness, <laughs> it's not post call dinner or you're just like, don't talk to anyone, <laughs> just do this. Um, you know, you might it, it weirds people out sometimes. I think if you eat like all of your food right away, or and they just sit there, or if you just don't eat any of the food and they have almost all of it there and they're like, all right, so let's go, let's go get drinks, and you're like, oh, I'm not even done with my food, hold on. Like, you want to sort of eat your food at a pace that you think roughly will end at the two hour mark. Let's say you have a table for two hours, then you're going to sort of eat some food and look at the time. Like, Okay, great, talk a little bit, sort of knowing that you have to time it to where you finish. Is that more work? Yes. Uh, is it worth it? In some cases it is, especially if you have a formal competition coming up. So like in your case, I think in 10 weeks, you have a bodybuilding show, right? And then if you do four to one, uh, a four to one paradigm twice that gets you 10 weeks and gets you to the show, if you just auto-regulate, you might be in a position where you're deloading like two weeks before the show. And you're like, all right, so deload two weeks before. And then a week before what do i do i kind of have to deload in order to get my body to look the best but two deal weeks in a row is active rest i'm going to look tiny and flat like shit. Yeah. you clearly fucked up so i think a lot of times when formal sport competition is the thing at least when you recognize okay i'm in pre-contest you can look forward and plan all of your accumulations dealer paradigms plan your muscles in advance and then use your intelligence to adjust to make sure to sort of land the plane on time every single time it takes a little bit more more effort um, but it, it pays off to basically you can peak when you want
0: yeah no that's really interesting I think that's I, I think that's actually underrated people don't really talk about this but where you land in your mesocycle cycle does affect how you look and that's really important for contest prep competitors so I actually have my contest prep you know excel file open here and uh, like I plan everything out before it with the countdown of weeks and I actually like, yeah. Pay special attention to have my meso cycles line up so that I will be right at the peak of my the, the top of my meso cycle when I compete because I find that's when I'm I'm the most full.
1: Interesting. Like, well, like not to deload like week four or whatever.
0: Like, yeah, as in I'll be in my last week of my meso when I'm about to compete. That's when I find yeah. that. Um, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> you must be real tired then on stage. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the carbs, the carbs fix everything. Oh, I'm sure. (laughs) So yeah, that was really helpful. I think it'll give people a lot of uh, basic understanding in terms of progression. I get a lot of questions about structured progression schemes because people like to hang their hat on something. What are your thoughts on, you know, classic progressions like double progression or wave loading progression styles?
1: You remind me what double progression is. It gets a lot of, uh, fanfare. I've, I, I, don't, I think I used to know what it was.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so basically the, the old school bodybuilder way where you'll say set a defined rep range like eight to 12, and then you kind of add one rep whenever you can until you reach 12 with the same weight. And then when you, you'll reset back to eight with higher weight.
1: That's a fine rule. So I think the most important thing in progression is keeping in mind why you're doing it. In MNGWiz, whiz, that's really, I, I, I would pause it in saying that um, the why, the purpose mm-hmm. is something that we lose track of in so many of the things we do in bodybuilding and in life. And uh, if you recalibrate to having everything you do answer a decent why, then all of a sudden it becomes quite much clearer what you should be doing. So, you know, like you work in medicine the why is often what is going to make this patient better and get them back on their feet and not in the hospital anymore, for example. So any drugs you're considering administering, any surgery you consider recommending um, has to be sort of like someone's like, oh, you you want to use amoxicillin. Why? Well, the ultimate why is to get them better saying fuck out of here, right? Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't answer that, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? (laughs) Then you really have a problem, right? So um, funny enough, my, um, my parents, tangent, are a uh, full bore conspiracy theorist vaccine <laughs> denier. Like, it's not, it's not clear if the vaccine was a Chinese plot or if Biden did it but um, their doctor prescribes them sort of anything they want, I think. And um, they had COVID, like Omicron, so there was a cold, but they got, man, they got drugs. I didn't even know what the, I had to look them up. I was like, what the fuck is this? So it was like a herpes drug in there. And I was like, my man, just, just give them drugs. That's the answer, right? So his, his, his goal isn't to make them better, it's just to give them drugs. But um, so I think a lot of the times we, we get lost in double progression, triple progression, this and that. We just come back real quick to the, ask, ask the question. What is the purpose of progression? The purpose of progression, is to make training continually stimulus, stimulative, okay? To make training challenging so that your system responds with growth. Progression is too aggressive if it makes training so challenging as to make it unsustainable. So if you say, I'm gonna add five reps today, and you go all the way to failure and you accumulate so much fatigue that the next time you do the lift, you just get half the reps and you're like, yeah, shit, oops. And then on the other hand, if you say add one rep every time you work out, but you're adapting so fast that adding one rep it's three rr in week one you add another rep but you gain two reps of ability now you're four reps in reserve even though you added a rep and then you gain two more reps of ability now you're five reps in reserve even though you've added three reps total that's no good so the what i would say is uh the beginner grade or the simple version is add a little bit of weight and or repetitions and or so it could be both but the more advanced take is add whatever number of repetitions and or load that make the set challenging enough for the week of the mesocycle in which you're in. So what does that mean? You know, let's say we have a four week mesocycle of accumulation. Okay, so last week, we can go all the way to failure. One rep in reserve, two reps in reserve, three reps in reserve. So week one, how much? How many reps do you do with whatever load? Reps that roughly give you three reps in reserve. That's it, like say it's a set of 10 where you could have done 13. In week two, it's two reps in reserve as the target. So how much weight and or repetitions do you add? Well, that should be auto-regulated. Like if you're warming up for the hack squat and like, let's say 200 pounds for 10 was pretty tough last time, three RIR. And this time you warm up and you take 200 as a potentiation set and the shit damn near flies off your shoulders. You're like, man, what am I, I, I clearly got stronger. And a lot of times in that first week, if it's a new exercise, your technical abilities elevate so fast that you need a lot more weight to make Mm -hmm. that two RIR challenge. So you're like, fuck it, 225. You 25 for 10? You're like, hell yeah, that was really two RIR, right? And then the next week, well, so it's 200, first week, 225, second week, this week, it may be only 235, because you're like, your your noob gains are done. And the next week, it might be only 240, because you have accumulated a shitload of fatigue up at this point, you still want to cause a challenge, you still want to go pretty close to failure, but not so far that you lose reps and, and, and incur injury. So maybe it's like 200, 225, uh, 235, 240 linear like that maybe and it may be just you add five pounds every time and maybe you add one rep every time but so repetition schemes for beginners and intermediates that are like double progression like you know start at eight go up to 12 recycle back at eight totally fine as long as you remember in the back of your head let me say two questions is this challenging mm-hmm. and second question is is it not so challenging that it is unsustainable so at the bottom end of how easy you could progress it'd be like, okay, if it's not challenging, we don't go lower than that. So I would say last time you did 200 for a set of 10. If you're like, yeah, I'll do 200 for a set of 10 again. Like, really? Okay, you're not going to get optimum. You got to do something more. Your body's more adapted now. But then it's, there's 230 for a set of 10. Yeah, you could do it, but it would be zero RIR. What the fuck are you going to do next week? And also zero RIR takes your fatigue and multiplies it. So next week, even if you could get gains and could do 231, you had like one pound chip you put on the, on the thing, mm-hmm. you would be so fatigued that you would be doing that for fewer reps. And then all of a sudden you're over your MRV. So progression really is making, uh, adding repetitions and or load in such a way that makes a, a new challenge for you, but not so much of a challenge that you peter out super fast. And that, uh, the easy way to do it is to try to guess your RIR every single time. Easy in the sense that it's very straightforward, right? mm. Whatever weight I'm going to use or reps, I'm going to just hit two RIR. Um, unfortunately, it's very difficult to estimate in the real world. So you have to use a combination of judging RIR. And this is just, this is for the super advanced folks. Yeah, mm-hmm. you should keep RIR in the back of your mind because you could be very wrong. But what I do is I generally just add like five pounds to everything and or a rep when I feel like it needs to be done. So for example, if I'm in- inclining mm-hmm. and I'm doing like, or whatever I have later today, 315. Okay. My plan is a set of 10 uh, at the first, the first set is a set of 10 at 315. Now it's also, Supposed to be roughly two RIR. Now, if I get to nine and I'm like, mm, it's nine, it's nine, mm-hmm. I'm racking, that's it. Mm-hmm. If I get to 10 and I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna stop at 10. <laughs> I can't change the load while I'm lifting, so I'll do 11 reps or 12 reps, right? And mm-hmm. that way, I auto regulate to make it a little bit more challenging, a little bit more challenging, a little bit more challenging, the most challenging that I can recover from, v load.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way of thinking about it in terms of basically just aiming to track this this optimal level of stimulus throughout your mesocycle and you want to be you want to be hitting that from workout 1 and all the way through to the end and that's something that i think a lot of people you know they go into the gym on, on week 1 and they're just absolutely trashed and like limping out of the gym and it's just like you probably didn't need to be doing that so anyways oh in terms of cycling volume this is a common question i get asked when whenever you start talking about Manipulating volume throughout your meso cycle for different people of different experience levels. What what are some ballparks of how much their volumes might vary throughout a meso cycle?
1: So folks that are sort of beginner to intermediate level, I think beginners probably shouldn't be cycling volumes just intellectually a lot, and sometimes they burn mm-hmm. out by adding stuff. So you just like they they may get stronger so yeah. fast you don't even need to do that. Yeah, I would say for intermediates, um, what I've typically seen is a per session change of about three to five working sets per muscle group so for mm-hmm. example you start with six sets of chest on monday and you end with anywhere between nine and 11 sets of chest i've seen pretty commonly mm-hmm. that, again these are very very rough numbers right so if you're an intermediate you start with six sets of chest and you end with six sets i'm going to be like i don't know man i think you'd be challenging yourself if you start with six sets and you end with 16 i'm gonna be like, holy shit. <laughs> Either that six was not nearly remotely stimulative enough, or some weird shit happened. Or I don't even. I, I'd have to see it, right? Um, uh, and then for advanced folks, um, anywhere between zero and three is probably my best guide. I'll have situations where I start a mesocycle and I just won't increase at all in number of sets because just increasing the reps and/or load fucks me up so much that I just don't need anymore. Like, you know, you, you know, four sets of hack squats. You start, you get a great workout. Next next week, four sets of hack squats, a little bit more weight, a, a few more reps. If you finish set four and you're like, I'm done. My quads are done. Mm-hmm. I could do five sets intellectually, but why would I? It's a stupid idea. Remember, volume is only for what you need. You don't aspire to greater volumes. You also don't aspire <laughs> to greater loads. Like people say, well, I'll just put more weight on the bar to challenge myself. Like if your body's ready for the challenge and can do the reps you want with the weight, then yes, if, the, if your w- body's not ready, it's not a good idea to do so. And, and sometimes what typically happens to myself uh, and my training partners, Charlie and Jared nowadays that we're super, super advanced or whatever, is a lot of times we will have uh, like a four week accumulation, uh, four weeks of harder and harder and then one week of deload mm. in the first week, we'll do a certain number of sets. We'll raise that via auto-regulation in the second week. And then it's so stimulative that it's only rep and or load increases for week three, and four, and then we drop. So like hack squats, I'll do four sets week one, five sets week two, five sets week three, five sets week four, maybe six sets week four if I'm really trying to kill myself or something like that. But as you get more advanced, the the sort of translocation of volume within a mezzo starts to become quite unimpressive. Um, and it's funny because I got labeled as the guy probably with the I was using sort of examples of like ten to twenty, start at ten and go to twenty, mm. and I, I got sort of pinned. And that's per week, not per, not per session. I got sort of pinned as like, really, you're you're going to double your volume in a meso? That's how you train? I'm like, that's not how I train. It was just intellectual exercise. The way I train is actually I, I usually just increase one or two sets uh, throughout the entire meso um and, and a lot it's, it's so funny because a lot of people who have been following me for some time they'll see me post because I, I post almost all my workouts weekly mm-hmm. and they'll keep track it be like okay so like three weeks ago you did eight sets for back in this workout and now you're only doing nine i'm like yes and They're like why not i thought you add more sets i'm like well why i couldn't add more sets it was super stimulative every time and if i added more sets i would have just been overreaching early and the, your body really does tell you how many sets you can add if you listen to the proper signs and objective proxies, and then all of a sudden, it's not really up to you. You know, It's not really your choice. It's a matter of like, okay, am I checking the boxes? Yes, then then don't change. And just to make a fine point of it, the default is no change in set numbers. Hmm. Set number change has to come from your auto-regulation. It has to beep at you and say, hey, this isn't enough, or hey, this is too much. Uh, if, if, If everything's great, like for example, if I have an awesome chest workout, great pump, great soreness, I go in next week, I'm not planning to change it. I'm going to do the exact same workout with a little bit more weight, a few more reps and see if that's good enough. And if it's not, I'll do another set. But if it is, then to, Shit, that's awesome. I'm really winning. If I can just do the same workout over and over uh, and get amazing results.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no great points. And yeah, whenever I talk about volume now, I like to preface it by saying productive volume, you know, like it's, it's easy for people to fall into the rut of saying, oh, volume equals hypertrophy. Therefore let's add more sets. But uh, it's it's all it's a lot more about what you're actually able to recover from and adapt to. And I also really like how you use the the pump and your kind of intra session performance to help guide you because, you know, I think a lot of people are kind of against the idea of you know, in the science based community about like pumps and, you know, more of the metabolic side of things. But the, even even if you know the pump isn't a hundred percent the best indicator, it gives a little bit of indication. And the value in it is that you have basically real-time feedback. And that's a very important tool to be using in terms of auto-regulation.
1: So a few intellectual questions I have for folks that don't think the pump is anything of a proxy. And I agree, it's not a very good proxy. I hope there are better proxies soon to come. But for now, it's like this. If your client that you're training tells you they got no pump or basically no pump from a workout. Are you confident that was a very stimulative workout? If you can answer yes to that, that's nice, I'll shake your hand, I'll walk away and be like, all right, that's one way of doing things. (laughs) On the other hand, if your client has an obscene pump, like basically can't move their fucking packs anymore, are you really going to tell them to do more sets? Can you imagine having a total mind-numbing quad pump where you basically can't move your legs anymore, and you look at your sheet and it says three more sets of leg press? Why? What are you doing? And a lot of that interacts with like, you know, in- session fatigue. Like if your legs are so weak that you have trouble getting out of a fucking chair to put your belt on to do squats, why are you doing squats? And you have, I promise you, stimulated the faster fibers so much, they're basically done. What are we still doing there? And a lot of times that week one is where you make those mistakes. You, certain, you say, oh, I'm so excited. So, oh, deload, you get real pumped for training. Oh, I can't fucking wait. I'm going to destroy myself. And you program four sets of leg press. You're like, yeah, it's going to be great. And after three sets, you're like, I can't move my legs. They have maximally pumped. They're super fucking weak. And I know for a fact, they're going to be so, you know, like you can tell when you're going to get sore, you're like, shit ain't right. I'm going to get fucking super sore. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and and you still look at your sheet and go, oh, I still have another set. Don't do it. Don't do it. And if the person's like, well, pump doesn't mean anything. I'd be like, Really? I'm very comfortable saying it might need very little. But I'm not very comfortable. It might mean nothing at all. Yeah. I mean, goddamn, if you're getting no pump at all, you should probably do more work. If you're getting insane psycho pump, you're probably done. In between, there's tons of nuance, and I'm sure it's quite uncertain. But if you're ignoring those clear, obvious signals, I think it's not a great idea. Also, recently, uh, there was a paper that came out I just saw that actually, based on how much of a pump uh, a group of folks got in their first session, They actually did a predictive model, and it turns out the first session pump predicted hypertrophy very well through the entire mesocycle, as Mm. measured directly. That's quite curious, right? It is not a surprise to folks like myself and others who have worked with athletes, because the more fast twitch dominant athletes that we've coached in the past, they get pumped from basically nothing. There's one set of stiff-legged deadlifts. They're like, ah, ah, my hamstrings. And like a super slow twitch, not so jacked athlete can do like 10 sets of stuff like a and be like, I feel fine. You're like, yeah, that's not really a good thing. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. So a lot of times the people that get the most gnarly pumps are the ones that end up growing the most. Um, And that is another sort of link in the chain of saying, yeah, yeah, the pump probably has something to do with hypertrophy and can be used in an auto-regulated
0: fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, great points. Wrapping up here, I think there, I guess one more question I had in terms of the volume landmarks was in terms of MEV and MRV, what are some things that will affect these parameters? For example, calorie intake.
1: Yeah, that that one's huge. You know, so if you are very low calories, the amount of catabolic signaling is very high. And then in order for you to counterbalance that and grow muscle, the amount of anabolic signaling has to be very high. So if you're on a low calorie diet, you actually have to train more in order to not lose muscle and in order Mm -hmm. to gain more muscle. When people say like, hey, classic question, can I lose fat and gain muscle at the same time? Mm -hmm. The answer is often yes. It's just going to be a lot harder. And why? Well, you have to do more work. Your minimum minimum effective volume is going to start higher. And if your recovery is poor it has to be if you're eating fewer calories, your maximum recoverable volume, all those recovery systems are really dampened, it's gonna be lower. So now the window of adaptation you're dealing with is much smaller. So when you're progressing through the mesocycle, you're not gonna be adding that many sets or that many reps or that much load and your mesocycle comes to an end faster. So basically if you're in a fat loss phase, you know instead of putting five pounds on the bar each time, maybe put two and a half pounds on the bar each time. And someone's gonna be like, yeah, but doesn't that cause fewer gains? Yes. Absolutely does. Mm -hmm. And that's why you don't try to diet while gaining at the same time. So generally speaking, hypocaloric diets bring your MEV up, they bring MRV down, that's very bad. Um, Age generally brings your MEV up, MRV down. At some point in your 60s, most people cross over to where they can't actually put on any more new muscle if they have been training hard for a long time. Mm. Sad but true. It's just a fact of life. Um, another one is androgen use. If you use androgens, your minimum effective volume goes down. You, know, you take a shitload of D balls, you can get a pump in like one set. You know, I'm like, my God! Like, there's stories of guys starting Anadrol and D ball and going to the gym doing one set and just leaving because they're like, I can't move my arms. <laughs> Uh, and that's not by accident. That is actual growth. That's not, not a proxy. Yeah. And then your maximum recovery volume also goes up because, holy shit, you can recover from anything. You get super sore two days later, you're not sore at all and you're super ready. So, uh, you know, the more food you eat, uh, androgen exposure, natural variations in testosterone. Levels. Somebody with more testosterone generally has a lower minimum effective volume, higher maximum recoverable volume. You actually can tell the lower minimum effective volume because uh, teenagers that never lifted weights and have high testosterone just have like very muscular bodies just moving around in gravity is getting you jacked. Like holy shit, your MED must be really low, and that's definitely the case. Um, and you know, there's a bunch of others. Uh, exercise selection can be one of them, where if you have an exercise with a very high stimulus to fatigue ratio its MEV can be quite low. Like you ever use like a row machine, which is so well built, like the prime row, you do like two sets and you're like, oh my God, I'm Ronnie Coleman. Whereas another row machine, you just like, it hurts your elbows, hurts your elbows, hurts your elbows. And after rep five, it hurts your shoulders too. And you're like, fuck this. <laughs> like how my, my maximum recovery volume on this machine is super low. And my minimum effective volume is super high because I don't get a pump, I don't get sore. So I have to, it is super close to each other. Like I want a machine with a really broad spectrum where it doesn't take many sets to get you fucked up and it's so kind to your joints and your systemic fatigue, that you could add sets for a long time and still not reach MRV. That's a real good formula for growth.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was awesome. I think this uh, talk has been really practical for people. And I remember, you know, first learning about volume landmarks years ago, and totally revolutionizes your training. And I think learning how to execute a mesocycle is the backbone of uh, bodybuilding at the as you become more advanced. So I think It'll be really helpful for, for people. One, well, Thank you so yeah. much. Mm-hmm. One uh, fun question was during your last prep, what's the most unconventional meal you had? I know you post a lot yeah. on Instagram, sure. what
1: you eat. <laughs> you know, I don't know the most, but I'll give you a sample of a few meals. um, I would wake up at like four in the morning and my stomach was eating itself and mm. I would set aside within my macros, three egg white wraps that would just have a total of 15 grams of protein, no fat, no carbs. And they taste exactly how you would expect like cardboard. And so I'd roll them up and just sit on my couch in the dark eating them slowly have one drink of water and go back to bed. (laughs) What an exciting time. And I was like, you know, that's the only thing that was gonna get me back to sleep. And because I was so hungry, I couldn't sleep. And then once I ate those, and I could actually go back and do another few REM cycles. Three hours later, I woke up super all rested. So that was a thing. You know, um, peaking for the show, uh, especially the day of the competition, I had one meal, which was, um, oh God, whey protein pudding, which is awful. And I got, in order to keep the sodium down, I got unflavored whey, which is just Aww.
0: terrible. It's like
1: cement, it's like eating cement. I had that plus 300 grams of carbs from rice cakes and jam with no fluids. Um, it happened, that meal occurred. Uh, it was not the most fun thing in the world, but I was so hungry by then that I was like, yeah, this tastes fine. We'll see, unflavored whey protein, pudding. Yeah, even like chalk. as hungry as I was, I was like, if I could press a button to get these nutrients, but not have to eat them, I absolutely would. Whereas, you know, for the rice cakes and jam, I was like, okay, this is, this is better than the average. So yeah, that's that. Oh, what the hell are we doing? Bodybuilding is such a weird sport.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> strange, strange times. So yeah, thanks so much for being on. Where can people find you? And what are some new developments coming up over the horizon for you?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, anytime I talk about new developments before their due time, people just keep asking me about them every <laughs> other day. And I said, well, still, still far off. Uh, so I can't say much about that. I will say we have some big projects that works at RP. Um, and I will say that a new development that we just released uh, about a month ago that people should check out is our custom training templates. Um, this is a big step up from our male and female physique templates, where we're just like, you would pick a few things and then it would give you a template roughly like full body or leg priority or blah, blah, or beginner, immediate advanced. Now we have a website where you go and you pick, you know, three, four or five days of training, and then you pick male or female, and then you can, there's a drop down list of like 10 different muscle groups, all separated. And you can pick, I don't want to train it. I want to train at regular hypertrophy or i'm going to specialize training with double the volume that i normally would you can pick all the things yourself all the sliders by yourself designing literally a custom program and then you hit submit and we take lots of your money it's, just a, it's like 100 bucks 99 bucks and then you get a six week mesocycle constructed exactly how you want with all the priority focus that you want and you can alter all of the um exercise selections and reuse it we actually recommend. This is terrible. It's making us no money. We recommend you use it at least uh, three times. So that's 18 weeks of training for a hundred bucks. That's pretty sweet. And it's exactly tailored to what muscle groups you want to work in exact proportion. That's pretty rare for programs. So normally you get a program. It's just the program. And you're like, I, I want to do more biceps. And the designer's like, I don't know, go fuck yourself. you know, like, sweet. Sure. So I will, <laughs> sir. But now it's like really custom. Yes, we are working on a system that's much more custom than that. Most people can probably figure out what that is, but it's in the works. Ooh. And then, um, for where can people find me, you know what I'm saying? You find me in the streets, JJ. But if you do actually ever see me in real life, please say hi. This all looks very scary, but I promise I'm not scared at all. I'm mostly scared of myself, especially in the mirror. But um, YouTube, YouTube is a good place to find us now. So we're doing YouTube really big at RP and it's growing super fast. So just Renaissance Periodization on YouTube. If you're anything other than an exceptional speller, just type in Mike Hypertrophy, try to spell Isratel if you're curious about it and then then google will save you go come to the rest It'll throw up the channel we have videos like four or five times a week um some combination of my shitty humor and um super tons and loads of information uh so if you go to the rp youtube channel watch stuff uh, uh maybe you'll have fun
0: yeah that's awesome so yeah i'll put those links in the description and check out the the books on from renaissance periodization and dr mike himself on all the topics we talked about today So thanks again for being on the show.
1: Dr. Swole, thank you so much for having me. It's always, always a pleasure and an honor.
0: That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.